Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 23, brought to you by Jesus Centered Resources. I'm Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, which, which was released last year and the year before that, Spiritual Grit. And a couple of years before that, The Jesus Centered Life, which sort of sparked um, this podcast. And now we're five seasons into this podcast. I'm also the editor of The Jesus Centered Bible. So welcome, you longtime listeners. Welcome, you first-time listeners. Uh, so glad you're here. Uh, I wanted to let you know also, I've been trying to keep you updated, that a new daily devotional that I've created. It was uh, two years in the making. It's called the Jesus Center Daily. It's coming out in the fall. To be more specific, October 6th, it's coming out. So uh, as we get deeper into the summer, we're going to start to uh, post some excerpts from that daily devotional and some fun things that you as listeners will get to do to get a sneak peek at that before it's released. So I'm looking forward to that. So we're kicking off a new series in this episode that I'm calling In His Image. Like all our series, I have no idea how long this is going to go. <laughs> we're just going to keep di uh, digging and exploring until I feel like we're done, and then we'll move to something new. But In His, in His Image means that we're going to be exploring what makes Jesus Jesus, and how are we wired to reflect who he is, and what he does. So we know in the book of Genesis that man, human beings, were created in the image of God. And we've heard that since we were little kids, and it, we've heard it so much that it, I think it kind of doesn't mean anything to us anymore. But it's, a, it's not only poetic, it's a statement of fact that God created us in his image. That doesn't mean that the kind of image that you see in a mirror. It means that we are wired like him that there are aspects of who we are that directly mirror aspects of who he is. And so when we explore what makes Jesus tick, then we can learn more about what makes us tick. And when we see how he handles things in his life, in the way that he ticks, <laughs> then it can help us to learn how to uh, sort of not just follow Jesus, but live out Jesus in our everyday life. So we're going to explore a multiplicity of ways that we are created in the image of Jesus. And we're going to get in touch with how that thing in Jesus is also that thing in us. And so today in our first episode in this series, we're going to explore what it means to be needy. We don't often think of Jesus being needy, but he certainly was. So we're going to explore some upending encounters that Jesus had that show us not only his regard for neediness in human beings, but also how he lives it out in his own life. So during this uh, pandemic apocalypse, uh, we've participated in what I, you might call the decathlon of emotional workouts. We've had, what, uncertainty and fear and disorientation. I was just having a conversation with uh, somebody a couple of days ago about how deeply he's been disoriented 
by everything that's happened to him during this time. And he's used to being, having his feet under him. He, he would say he's used to being in control, but it's actually, we're used to being oriented <laughs> toward our reality. That we, we kind of uh, orient ourselves toward what we expect, and then we stop attending to those things. Disorientation is when all of those things have changed or been ripped out from underneath us, and now we don't know how to get our bearings. We knew what true north was before, and now we don't. We're confused, we're disoriented, we don't know which, which end is up anymore. And disorientation is very powerful. Um, and we've also been living under a steady stream of bad news. And I compare that to uh, emotional waterboarding. Uh, if you are exposing yourself to uh, a good amount of uh, the news out there on an everyday basis, it is literally pounding you down. You know this feeling, maybe some of you have even taken a, a, a little vacation from the news or from your social media feed just to give yourself some breathing room. But in the midst of all of this, uh, the, how we've been uh, emotionally challenged and now how our souls have been inundated with a, you know, just a steady stream of bad news, it has combined to, to make us feel, I think, more needy than, than we've ever felt before and therefore more vulnerable than ever before. I came across a, a little snippet from, of all places, a German English language news station reporting on how stress is impacting our soul. And I, I thought it was fascinating. You'll, you'll, you're gonna hear here, I'm just gonna let, let you in on a little snippet from this report. You're gonna hear a guy with a British accent, even though it is a German English language news station, you can hear this guy with an English accent, um, leading up to uh, an interview with a psychotherapist who's going to talk about the, the impact of bad news on our soul. So I want, I want you to listen just for a couple of minutes to this news report. Let's listen. Stay in bed forever, just cry, or plainly freak out because the bad news about corona seems to have no end. Well, these are tough times. You switch on the news or look at your favorite website and it's not a pretty picture. More dead every day, infections on the rise. Johns Hopkins now counts more than one million cases worldwide. Healthcare systems are reaching their limits. Whole countries in lockdown. Friends and families are cutting off contact with each other. So what coronavirus does to the body is quite well known by now and more research is underway. But what does it do to our soul? Fear of infection, the isolation, worries about loved ones who are at risk. What can we do to not be overwhelmed by panic? Let's bring in Maren Urner. She's a neuroscientist and her field of research really is bad news and what it does with our brain. Maren, how does this barrage of bad news that we're seeing right now influence our perception of this pandemic? Well, first of all, it tilts the perception in a certain direction because as you already mentioned, most of the news are actually negative. So we get the idea that the world out there is even more negative and even more challenging um, than it is really. So what 
that does to our brain is really create a continuous or chronic stress response. So we're continuously in this situation where we think we either have to fight or run, the fight or flight response. And what that does to our perception and also to our decision making uh, abilities is currently under research. And what we know so far is that it definitely hinders long term or good decisions that are focusing on long term plans. Um, the, uh, uh, the virus it is a threat we cannot see or feel. It's similar to radiation. Does that give the fear another dimension? Yes, certainly, because, of course, if we see something like a wave coming towards us, we can run. And um, what we realized also, especially uh, in many countries where the virus wasn't present in the beginning, people were very relaxed about it because it was far away. And something we know about risk perception in humans is that <laughs> spoken uh, openly is quite bad. So mm. when we don't see something, we actually can't grasp it because our brains are not optimized for that. So it really needs to be local, it needs to be immediate, and it needs to hurt people for us in order to act. And of course, that creates really a challenging situation, because then what also comes into effect is what I mentioned before, that it creates this continuous stress response, which hinders our problem-solving abilities. All right, you can hear that neuroscientist there talking about uh, the impact also of this unseen enemy. And it's fascinating to listen to her say that, and, and you've probably experienced this in, in your own sphere, that unless that unseen thing becomes seen, meaning the threat becomes visible in some way, we tend to not act. And even then when we do act, our acting mechanism, our decision-making ability has already been compromised by the continuous stream of stress. So um, all of this squeezes our emotional bandwidth, doesn't it? So all human beings experience uh, basically eight feelings in, in life. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna read to you um, these eight feelings right now, and I want you to listen carefully for which one of these is true, most true of you right now. Now there's seven difficult feelings and one good one at the end. So I want you to, to narrow down and focus in on one of these that if you had to, you could tell a story about how that emotion is real for you right now, how that emotion applies to you right now. So here are the eight feelings, anger, hurt, lonely, sad, fear, shame, guilt, and glad. So I'm gonna read this again, slowly. I just want you to think of a story you could tell about one of these emotions that is true for you right now. And how, how would you share that, the story that ties into that emotion right now? So let me read them one more time, listen carefully. Anger, hurt, lonely, sad, fear, shame, guilt, glad. So, eight feelings. Which one of those sticks out to you? Which one of those sort of uh, rises to the surface for you? And if I asked you to share that story that you're thinking about tied to that emotion, with the next person you talk to today, how would it feel for you to share that story? Like for instance, when I look at that, when I look at that list, 
you, you guys know, because I've been updating you along the way, that about, uh, uh, about a month and a half ago, I found out that because of the pandemic's effect on uh, the revenues on group publishing, where I've worked for 33 years, the leadership was forced to cut half of our staff. And I got the news, the bad news, that I was going to be one of those that was cut. And the immediate uh, emotion that I felt was kind of shock. It was just kind of surreal, even though I could, I knew in the back of my mind that this was always a possibility because of the colossal impact the pandemic has had, has had on our organization. I knew it was possible, but it still felt surreal. I think for the first couple of weeks, for sure, just trying to kind of swim in my head <laughs> out of this sort of tsunami that washed over me. And then what set in was fear. Uh, and that's probably not surprising because I've worked in the, for the same organization for 33 years. And now all of a sudden I'm creating a resume for the first time in three decades. And I'm exploring multiple options of what am I going to be doing in the future? And how am I going to provide for my family? And um, how is my family feeling about all this? And it naturally generated fear, like the kind of fear where, you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and then you can't stop thinking, right? You start, you start thinking about all the scenarios and what if this happened, what would happen? And, and it starts to grip you and then you become aware that you're gripped um, by it. And also this sort of conviction that I don't want to live in fear, that I have this tension in me that I want to keep my hands open and trust Jesus for the beauty out of ugly that I'm about to enter into. And yet, fear hangs around on my horizon like a thunderstorm all the time. And I feel disoriented, obviously. I'd talk about uh, orienting yourself to your job. <laughs> I had 33 years to do that. And so now I don't have those sort of moorings any longer. I can't call myself by the title that I've called myself for so long. So of course that disorientation leads to fear. So maybe your emotion that you that surfaced for you wasn't fear. Maybe it's uh, anger, hurt, lonely, sad, shame, guilt, or glad, one of those. But if I asked you to do what I just did with you and share that emotion with the next person you talk to today, how would that feel? Well, for most people that would feel vulnerable and kind of like you, you seize up inside a little bit. Like you, you think, ah, I'm not sure if I really wanna share that. And if I did share that, I would just share it on a surface level. But if I was really gonna share it, I think that would feel really vulnerable. And it feels vulnerable even with people that we know well and trust to share something that is truly vulnerable about our feelings, accesses something in us, even when we're sharing it with people that we trust. So if you've given your life to Jesus, then you have two birth homes. Uh, the one that your parents brought you home to is your first birth home, whatever home that was. But if you've committed your life to Jesus, you, the, we know from scripture that you have a second birth home. The, this is the one that Jesus has invited you into. Uh, when he said to Nicodemus the Pharisee, you have to be born again, he meant that for everybody that we're born over into a new home and a new family. And the new home is called the kingdom of God and our new family is the body of Christ. 
So we have a birth home their parents brought us home to, and we have a second birth home that Jesus has brought us home to. And we all have a longing for what that word home represents. So uh, put aside for just a second what your actual birth home was like or what your home is like right now. Put that aside for a second and just think about what the word home represents, what it's supposed to mean for us, I guess is another way of saying it. So home is supposed to be a place where we can be completely ourselves, but still enjoyed for who we are. It's a place where we can be vulnerable and feel safe doing that. It's a place where we can be brutally honest about our needs. But for many of us, um, neither of our two homes feels like this. Neither your birth home feels like a place where you can be completely yourself and enjoyed and be brutally honest and vulnerable and be, feel safe doing that. Maybe your birth home never felt like that. Maybe your current home doesn't feel like that. And maybe even your, your second birth home, the body of Christ, or I guess another way of saying it is your church home. Maybe that church home doesn't feel like you can be those things either. I know for many of us, myself included, we've had some very painful experiences in our church homes over the years where we have been vulnerable and sort of felt punished for that. Or maybe you've always felt excluded from that church home. It doesn't feel safe in the way that we wish home would. Well, Jesus wants us to find that uh, longed for experience of home in him. He wants us to find our place, our home inside him, inside a relationship that invites our vulnerability and gives us a safe place to be needy. Whatever place that you feel safe being needy is actually your real home, whatever that home might look like. And Jesus is longing for himself to become that home for us, the, the, maybe the one place where we can be completely ourselves and still enjoyed, be vulnerable and feel safe doing it, where we can be brutally honest about all of our needs. He wants himself to be that home. So that means by extension, here's the kicker, finding that home in him necessarily means we find it in his body. We can't just find home with our sort of our mystical connection to Jesus. We find home, we must find our home in our relationships with others who make up the body of Christ. And that brings us back to our frustration. Will we ever really find a place where we can be as needy as we long to be <laughs> with others, as honest and vulnerable as we long to be? So let's, let's, uh, let's explore this from two different directions now. Let's dive right in to one of those Bible stories that you probably heard when you were young. Um, if you, if you were, grew up in the church, for instance, um, you almost certainly heard the story of blind Bartimaeus. Now, this uh, Bartimaeus is a beggar who was determined to get Jesus' attention as Jesus and his disciples passed by him, headed out of town when they were in Jericho. So let's, let's just read the story of blind Bartimaeus. And I want you to be thinking about as I read this, by the way, this is from Mark 10, 46 through 52. So if you're not driving right now and you want to crack open your Bible, your Jesus-centered Bible, crack it open to Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And 
Um, I want you to think about something as I, as I read this. I want you to think about what, what is going on inside of Bartimaeus during this encounter, and what do you think is going on inside of Jesus? What's going on inside of Bartimaeus, and what's going on inside of Jesus in this encounter? Here we go, starting in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and the they is Jesus and his disciples. And as they, Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, whose name is Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, hey, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So um, here we have this short, intense encounter between a blind beggar, a man who likely has been sitting by the side of that road his entire life, uh, marginalized from everyday culture and society, uh, living under the knowledge that in ancient Jewish culture, if you had an issue like blindness from birth, that it was certainly because your parents sinned and you are reaping the curse from that sin. This is certainly your reality according to the way ancient Jews saw physical deformities and chronic diseases. Uh, something his parents had done was terrible and now he was paying the price for it. Or if he wasn't born blind, it was something he did and now he was paying the price for it. Either way, uh, blindness like this was seen as a curse, as a punishment for something bad. So he's not only marginalized and needy, uh, he literally depends on others to survive, but he also has to live under the shadow of his identity being twisted into a man who's guilty, a man who must live under this blanket of shame his whole life. So there he is sitting to, uh, really near the gate of Jericho as, as Jesus and his disciples are about to leave. And this means that Jesus had been in Jericho for a while and that Bartimaeus had likely heard him or at least heard of him. But in some fashion, he understood who Jesus claimed to be. Now, just because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, obviously we know from scripture that many, many, many people questioned that reality, especially the religious leaders. But in this case, this man appears to have believed that Jesus actually is the Messiah because when he hears that it's Jesus, he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This son of David is a sideways way of recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so when he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, many of the people around him told him to shut up, to be quiet. Uh, this was embarrassing. 
They wanted him to stop talking, stop shouting at Jesus. You're an embarrassment. Don't bother the man. Uh, but uh, he shouted all the more, it says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops then. And he says, call him over here. So they, calls, they call the blind man. They tell him, get up, get on your feet. He's actually calling you. I can't believe it, but he's, he's, he's inviting you over. So the man throws his cloak aside. It's probably the only possession he has in life, his cloak. He throws it aside so he can jump to his feet and he comes to Jesus. He doesn't delay, doesn't ask somebody to help him. He bolts, he, he moves toward Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, what do you want me to do for you? Now he's obviously blind. <laughs> he's obviously desperate and needy. So why does Jesus ask this blind, desperate, needy man what he wants Jesus to do for him. Uh, Jesus has a pattern of doing this with people who come to him with needs. Instead of simply bypassing them and assuming he knows what they need, he first asks. It's a, it's a dignity-giving kind of question, a respect-giving kind of question. Instead of assuming what you want, I'm going to ask you what you want. And secondarily, instead of simply doing something for you, I want to do something with you. I want you to partner with me in what's about to happen. Once again, uh, creating a foundation of dignity under Bartimaeus's feet. Instead of simply doing for him, which many people have done throughout his life, Jesus says, no, I want your agency involved in this too. I want to partner with you in this, not do it for you. So he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man immediately says, Rabbi, I want to see. And by saying, I want to see, this man is essentially uh, living out with his actions what he said he believed. He says he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and now he asks the Messiah, the one who is able to give him back his sight, to return his sight. He is investing in a powerful way his all-in belief. And Jesus then says, go. Your faith has healed you. Not I have healed you, but the faith that you have just expressed in me has led to your healing. He is, again, giving Bartimaeus, if you want to think about it this way, the credit for his healing. He's not giving himself the credit. He is saying, Bartimaeus, because you have believed in this way with such certainty, that faith is what has healed you now. And so uh, Bartimaeus receives back his sight, and out of delight, he follows Jesus along the road. Now, sometimes, like if you remember the story of the 10 lepers that were healed, and, on, and only one of them came back to thank Jesus, uh, if you remember that story, wow, nine out of 10 don't even stop to thank him? Why? It's human nature. We have a huge gaping problem in front of us. As soon as that problem gets solved, our desire for the problem solver ends. We don't need that problem solver anymore because the problem's been solved. And in this case, Bartimaeus has his problem solved, but he wants uh, to follow along with Jesus. He doesn't want to just go on with his life now. He is so grateful and so overcome by what Jesus has done for him that he wants to follow him. And that's what he does. So here we have Bartimaeus living out his neediness in an atmosphere, in a charged atmosphere, 
where people are not for him. They want him to shut up and be quiet. And, and yet he persists in uh, laying his neediness out in front of Jesus. And it's that persistence, that disregard for the pressures at work on him and his magnetic uh, determination to engage Jesus about this that really captures Jesus' attention. And that's why he calls him over. And then he, then he questions him what, he wants, what, what Bartimaeus really wants. And he discovers that Bartimaeus is indeed all in, that he is not shy at all about revealing his vulnerability. In fact, asking Jesus to restore his sight in front of all these people who have seen him blind his entire life is a tremendously vulnerable thing to ask. What if Jesus can't do it? What if he's made this huge spectacle in front of everyone and Jesus is unable to cure his blindness? Um, Bartimaeus has shoved all his chips into the middle of the table in front of people who are against him and don't like him and want him to shut up. What a tremendous risk of vulnerability Bartimaeus has shown. And why do we show that level of, of, of uh, vulnerability? Usually because we have determined we have nothing left to lose anymore. It takes a lot to get us to this place where we feel like we have nothing left to lose, even if others don't like it and and hammer us because of it, we don't care anymore. Because the, we used to care about that, but we don't anymore. We have nothing left to lose. That's Bartimaeus in this moment. So here we've explored his neediest, neediness and vulnerability. Now let's explore the same dynamic uh, in Jesus. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, Jesus was also needy and vulnerable with his needs. So uh, we see this viscerally in the Garden of Gethsemane, right toward the, the end of his journey on earth, when Jesus knows, knows some things that his disciples haven't fully realized yet. What he knows is that he's, he's about to be arrested. He's about to be railroaded by a bunch of corrupt religious leaders. He's about to be tortured with 39 lashes. Now, 40 lashes was a death sentence. And Jesus is tortured with 39, one short of a death sentence. So for many people, 39 lashes means you're dead after that experience. Jesus endures all of that and does not die, but then must carry his cross to Golgotha and then be nailed to that cross to experience the slow asphyxiating death of crucifixion on a cross. So Jesus knows this is what's in front of him. And all those things are horrific enough but he knows one more thing that no one on earth really understands is that as he takes on the sin of the world, there's going to be this gap when he is no longer uh, connected in an intimate way to his father, where he is, feels forsaken, like out of relationship for, a, for, a, for a, a moment. We don't know how long that moment is, but Jesus knows it's coming. The only reality he's ever known is intimacy with the Father and the Spirit, and he knows there's coming a time when he is going to feel forsaken and apart from them. And that is a horror worse than all of the physical horrors he knows he's about to go into. So this is the setting for this time in Gethsemane that Jesus has just before all this happens. So I'm going to read this account encounter first, and I want you to think about how Je what Jesus 
Jesus' relationship is with neediness as we look through this, in, uh, this, this brief story. Think about what's going on inside of Jesus and think about um, his neediness and what, what he does about his neediness as we read. So this is from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Matthew 26, 36 through 46, Jesus at Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And then Jesus went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he just turned around and left them and went away one more time and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay, here we have this charged situation where Jesus is at the end of himself in many ways. We've, it's, we don't see Jesus like this, really, at this sort of place of desperation anywhere else in his journey, but here in Gethsemane. And we see sort of the, uh, we get a peek inside of what's going on inside of him at this point. And what do we see when we think about what, what, we, what we can see about uh, Jesus, the, the impact of his situation on Jesus? So first, first, what we know is he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, meaning he is in such a state of grief that he, it feels like he's dying. That's how deep the grief goes in him. But he doesn't just feel this feeling inside. He shares that feeling with his disciples. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This, this is the kind of sorrow, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced it, where it feels like you're not gonna survive that grief. It feels like you can't see the other side of your grief. So he shares this with his disciples um, in a uh, radically vulnerable way, letting them know, here's what's going on in me. And he, he takes Peter and James and John away from the rest of the disciples because they're the ones that are closest to him. And they're the ones that he feels like he can share the depth of the raw emotions he's feeling right now. And he, he tells them exactly what he's feeling inside. And based on that, he invites them to be with him, to partner with him, 
to be his comfort in the midst of this. He asks for their advocacy on his behalf. He asks for them to come alongside him and be with him. And he's about to experience profound disappointment when they're not able to even do that little thing. So he just asks them to stay there and just keep watch with him. Keeping watch with him simply means be with me. Don't fix my problem, but if you could just be with me right now, be attentive to me, I would really appreciate it. So he went a little further away and he fell with his face on the ground and he prayed and he, what he prayed, he did this, the same thing three times. He, he asked his father if it was possible to take the cup away that he was about to drink from that, that he would, but he reaffirmed his determination to do what his father needed him to do no matter what. And he reiterates this two times, two times more. Why? Because he is in such a difficult place. He's in turmoil inside. He wants to, he wants to engage his father and say, if there's any chance that I can avoid what's about to have happen, please, let's, let's, let's go another route. But if there is no other way, then I'm committed. Have you ever been in a place where you realize you have something horrifically hard to do? Of course you wonder and you go over in your mind, is there another way to do this? Is there another uh, option I can choose to, to deal with this? Jesus is doing the same thing. But at the end of it, he is saying, uh, if there is no other way, then I am committed. I'm determined. I'm unwavering. I am going to do it. But I can't help but be vulnerable and needy first. And he's not only letting his disciples know that he's needy, he's directly letting his father know how needy he is. Now, his father knows everything already. So why does Jesus have to speak it out to him? Because in speaking out our need, um, we access uh, our courage. Uh, dragging something from the darkness inside of us into the light is a powerful kingdom of God thing to do. To take something from the darkness into the light sort of makes it real. You know what this feels like when you finally share with others what you're really feeling inside. That's when it becomes, it takes on sort of this substance to it. That's when it becomes actually real. Now you're not just playing with that feeling, you're actually uh, giving it a name and you're giving it substance. And that's what Jesus does. So here Jesus. Uh, prays the same prayer three times. His disciples are unable to be with him. He's experiencing utter loneliness. Like uh, it's, it's now down to him. And he knows that even a deeper utter loneliness is coming when not only will his best friends desert him and not be with him at his hour of greatest need, but he will also experience the separation from his father. The loneliness is such a lever. So what do we see happening inside of Jesus in this encounter? We see surrender, where he has come to this point of no turning back, that this is the point that all of his life has been leading up to, this moment. Um, he's seen it coming. He's, no, he's known it's going to come. He's tried to tell his disciples it's coming, but now is the moment. Um, I remember, uh, now, now this is a terrible <laughs> illustration, I'll warn you in advance, but I remember when I learned that my job was going to be eliminated and my last day of work would be July 1st. I remember I, I kept looking to that day and I, inside I would say to myself, it's not yet, it's not yet, 
that day isn't yet. And then it was. Then it was July 1st and driving up to group for my exit interview and then going through that sort of HR process, which uh, was, you know, professional, but um, not at all uh, something that touched my soul. It's just part of what you have to do when you leave a position. You have to go through an exit interview. So leaving that exit interview and eventually driving back down home, back home, now this day that I had been looking forward to and saying, not yet, not yet, now I was living it. And now I was in the middle of that experience. And in a, in a minor, obviously minor way, this is where Jesus was. He had been looking to this day for his entire life. And now he was no longer looking forward to it. Now it was happening. He was living inside the experience. And in living inside that experience, all of his hopes for support and encouragement for others to be with him were dashed. Even his closest friends couldn't give him the passion of their presence during this, uh, during this difficulty. And so he surrenders in the midst of that. Instead of retreating, he gives, he gives himself over to what's about to happen. It's almost like if you picture uh, a roller coaster car going up the steep incline and it's going up and up and up and, and this is the, the path of Jesus's life and ministry and he gets to the top and there's that moment where everything is stationary for just a second. You feel like you're in the precipice between going up and going down. There's this, just this moment where you don't yet have the momentum of the car hurtling down the other side, that's where Jesus is. And it's his determination. It's him saying, not my will, but yours, which nudges that car down the other side of the hill. And now everything is going to be pinpoint focused on the cross. Now at this moment, he is hurtling himself toward his mission, his Messiah mission to take on the sin of the world and restore, give us the possibility of a restored relationship with God. So you have all this potential energy that pushes you all the way up to the top of the hill. All of these things that have pushed Jesus to this point, now there's a huge release of that energy. You also, I think, see in this encounter some honest anger. You know, uh, anger is, uh, often people will say anger is grief expressed sideways. But honest anger is what you see in Jesus here. Honest anger is, here's, what, here's the minimum expectation I had for you, and you're not even able to do that. And in his honest anger, he's also revealing his vulnerability. To be honestly angry means to risk the, the experience of your anger on others. And so he he's honest with his disciples. How could you, why couldn't you just stay awake for a little bit? Even that kind of expression of honest anger is an act of vulnerability. So um, what Jesus is doing here, it, it, which is profound and it, and it connects into us as well, is he's allowing his anger and his surrender and his need, all of that to rise and come to the surface. We spend our lives, uh, living our lives, trying to tamp down those eight emotions for the most part. We don't want to show anything too intense in our life. But here Jesus is allowing the intensity of those emotions, the intensity of his need 
to bubble to the surface and be experienced by others. He's doing it in a brave way, in a courageous way. The, 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 the responses he's getting back from his disciples aren't helping either. It's not that just because he's being raw and honest about his emotions that the people around him know how to respond or even are paying attention to him. He still risks it anyway, coming back to them twice and telling them again, don't you understand? This is my need right now. He risks to have the courage to show his need. His hands are grasping for help from both his father and his disciples. His hands are outreached, hoping he can find help. Now, if you think about uh, when we typically think about Jesus, that he is um, he's fully God and fully human, we mostly default to the fully God side, that we don't really understand or even accept that Jesus's neediness in this moment is a perfect, uh, uh, perfect depiction or perfect uh, understanding of what it means to be human, to risk your neediness in front of others, especially when those others don't seem to respond well to that neediness, is one of the greatest acts of courage that we can live in. And that act of courage to show others your need is a profound act of faith. When Jesus says to Bartimaeus that your faith has made you well, your faith has re restored your sight to you, he's really saying your determination to share your need in a divisive, charged situation has power. It's going to push your roller coaster car over the top and go hurtling down now. This act of courage, sharing your need in a vulnerable way with me, when you're going to get punished for it and you are getting punished for it, is a profound act of courage. And Jesus is absolutely drawn to that act of courage. He's drawn to it in us, but he also lives it in himself. Jesus loves it when we are honest about our need. And in order for us to be honest about our need, we have to share it with others in the body of Christ. It's actually not enough to just share it with him. That's one level of intimacy. But he has instituted his body on earth to live out his vision and mission on the earth. And uh, that neediness. The power of that neediness really comes to fore when we're able to share it with someone in the body of Christ, when we're able to risk to share it. So Jesus is modeling for us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God and to live out his image in us when we, like him, share our need in a vulnerable way without demanding from others. Jesus, uh, his anger is in that He's asked his friends a basic thing to do, and they weren't even able to do that. So he's even honest about his anger. But he shares all of that need in a vulnerable way. So this is, this is what he's inviting us into. Can, to follow Jesus means to be in touch with our neediness, to proclaim our neediness, to be honest about it, to be vulnerable about it, and therefore to be free of the shame that tamps it down. And when we do, we learn from Bartimaeus that Jesus sees that as a tremendous act of faith. 
And stuff happens in us. Stuff is transformed when that happens. Jesus wants us to live in him as if he's the safest home we could ever imagine. He wants us to live in him as home. Just to close off here, I wonder if you remember that closing scene from The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy is finally ready to go back home and the good witch of the East tells her that she can help her to get back home. All she has to do is click her heels and repeat something that will help her to come back home. I thought it would be interesting just for us to hear the last minute of uh, the, the Wizard of Oz to hear what happens here when Dorothy finds her way back home. Let's listen to this scene. Are you ready now? Yes. Say goodbye, Toto. Yes, I'm ready now. Then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. 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 Wake up, honey. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Yes, Dorothy says, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And metaphorically, that's true for us as well. Just going to give you a moment of silence here to just say whatever you want to to Jesus. You've, you've just heard Dorothy say there's no place like home. What, what do you need to say to Jesus right now? I'll give you a moment of silence and then we'll close off. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Now this is, again, if, if, if you're, if you're uh, wanting to find out more about this podcast or if you'd like to uh, get on my email list, uh, I'd love for you to be on my email list. It takes just like 10 seconds. All you have to do is go to ricklawrence.com, ricklawrence.com, and there'll be a link there that allows you to sign up on my email list. Or you can also go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and just look for this episode, season five, episode 23, season five, episode 23, Look for this episode and there'll be a link right there that you can click on. You can just add your name and email address to make sure that you uh, uh, receive any of my uh, future blogs or resource ideas, or I will talk to the people on my email list about getting uh, an early snippet of the Jesus Center Daily, the daily devotional. So I just encourage you to head over there to paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com season five episode 23 and click on that link and get on my email list and we'll go from there this again is paying ridiculous attention to jesus it's a podcast produced at ricklawrence.com and you can subscribe to us on itunes or, or google play or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that you keep them coming 
And gang, we'll talk again next time.